It, uh, it helps when the mute button is not on. So, sorry about that. Okay, so let's just start off. Let's pretend that didn't happen, right? That's part of practice. Uh, as I said, my name is Lee, and I'm the family pastor here at FBC Benicia. And I'm excited to get to bring the word today. And for those of you that have heard me before, um, I am from the South. My wife and I are from the South. Two things have happened this weekend that remind me that I'm still fairly new to California and that things are a little bit different. The first thing was the, the earthquake yesterday. I know it wasn't a big deal. Everybody's like, oh, it wasn't big. I'm like, in the South, our houses don't shake, right? <laughs> like, that's not, something, that's not something that happens. And so, our, you know, that happened yesterday. It felt like a truck had run into our house. I was outside with the kids, and our neighbor came outside and said, uh, was that an earthquake? I said, I, I don't, you tell me. I don't know. We don't, we don't have these in Louisiana. And the second thing was that yesterday was the start of college football. Now, in the South, Sunday morning would be the time where literally everyone talks about how their team did yesterday. Today, that was basically me and Frank. Frank's from, Frank's from Georgia. So we were talking about how our college football teams did this weekend. And that was really the only conversation. So it's completely different. So it's just more, you know, it's good. it was a good weekend. It was a good weekend. My first earthquake, college football started. You know, I, life's good. I don't know what to say. But something terrible did happen this week. Our microwave broke. Yeah, that's terrible, right? Now, granted, this was a $10 microwave we picked up at a yard sale. We moved into our house a couple of months ago. But this week, my wife went to heat something up. She pushed the buttons, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. So I get home. You know, obviously, as, as the man, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get home. I'm going to fix this. It's a microwave, no big deal. So I get home, the microwave looks like it's supposed to work, right? It's plugged in, it's sitting there, there's nothing wrong with the appearance of the microwave. So I put something in, I push the buttons, and nothing happens. I'm thinking, okay, I'll move it to a different part of the house, it's probably just the outlet. Plug it into a different part of the house, still nothing is working. The microwave has the appearance that everything is fine and that it should be doing what it was created to do, but it's not. Now, because that's a cheap microwave, what I'm going to do with that is I'm going to throw it out, right? I'm not going to spend time or money to try and fix that. I'm going to get rid of it because it's not doing the thing that it was created to do. Even though it looks like everything should be fine, it is failing at its job. So today we're going we're gonna to continue in Mark, and we're going to see what are some things that are supposed to be evident in our lives that maybe have the appearance that we're doing something we should be doing, but in reality, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We're continuing in the book of Mark. Last week, Pastor Matt spoke about, you know, the, the Jewish people had this idea of Jesus making this huge entry into Jerusalem to, to claim to be king. And it ended up being very anticlimactic. In verse 11, Jesus comes in, he looks around, and then he just kind of, he kind of steps back. He goes home, right? He leaves the next day. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, from Jerusalem where the temple was to Bethany was about a two-mile walk. So that's how they're going. It's about a two-mile distance. But in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus does not take the, uh, the calm way out of things. 
he decides to go a little bit crazy today to kind of turn things upside down, which he was known to do, right? That's Jesus' whole thing is, listen, you guys have this way you think the world should run, but I'm going to flip that upside down on its head, and I'm going to show you that what you think is best is not. So we're going to read in verses 12 through 25. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. By looking at this, there there are just some general questions that should come up, right? Not even getting into the deeper meaning, but just surface level. Let's, Let's look at this. Jesus is going here, and he sees that this fig tree has leaves, but he looks for fruit, but there's no fruit because it says it was not the season for figs. Why would Jesus curse a tree that's not producing fruit if it's not the season for it to happen, right? That's not something that you should gloss over. That should stand out and be like, okay, that doesn't make sense. What's going on? Why would Jesus do something like this? And for some people, it becomes a point to not get past. There was an author named Bertrand Russell And in the 1950s, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And he used this passage as one of his reasons. Because he he accuses Jesus of vindictive fury for blaming the tree for not producing figs out of season. And here's, here's a quote that he has in his book. I cannot feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue that Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So in his mind, this shows that Jesus is really not that virtuous. He really doesn't have a lot of wisdom because if he's supposed to be the son of God, shouldn't he know when fig trees are supposed to be producing figs? Those are general questions just that some people can't get past. Anybody ever get hangry? I'm sure I'm not the only one. Okay, good, yeah. Hangry is when you're hungry and you you don't have food and everything frustrates you. Things that really don't bother you normally become very agitating because we get hangry. That is what this guy Russell was accusing Jesus of doing. Because Jesus was hungry and couldn't find fruit, he just cursed it. Now, I don't know about you, when when I get hangry, 
my patience is, is basically gone, right? Um, I hate to say this, but my, my kids and my wife get on my nerves a whole lot faster if, if I haven't eaten in a while. So my wife knows this, and we've been married for almost 10 years now, so she'll usually say, you need something to eat. And, so, and, and she's right about 99.9% .9 of the time. So she's like, this, this is in the kitchen, go get you something and you'll be good to go. But that's what they're accusing Jesus of, is just being hangry. Now, with the little research, this guy Russell could have figured out the reason why Jesus was okay, why Jesus was justified in what he was doing. But if you're writing a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, you're not going to research things that prove your point wrong. So he chose not to do that. But that's something that we are, are going to do today. So how is Jesus justified in this? Because again, at first glance, it seems kind of petty that Jesus would curse a tree that doesn't produce any figs. But in researching fig trees, after the figs are harvested, the branches of a fig tree sprout these little buds, little green buds, and the Hebrew word for them was called pagim, P-A-G-G-I-M. Now, when the, when the tree is starting to produce, it starts with the knobs first, and then the leaves come next. People who were traveling would pick the knobs because they were still edible. It was still something you could have. And that was supposed to be there before the leaves. So when Jesus comes, in verse 13, it says, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. The way that fig trees work, if there are leaves, these little knobs that you could eat should have been there. They should have been there. So Jesus would have been able to to, to pick those on his way to the temple or to Bethany and eat those to kind of get rid of his hangriness, right? To be able to snack on them. That's something that should have been there. This is mentioned even in the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, it talks about the pagum. It talks about these little knobs that are on the fig tree and that they can be eaten. So then it would make sense then that Jesus would expect to find something there. It makes sense that Jesus would expect to find the fruit because he sees the leaves. Now, if you spent any time reading the Bible, you know that there's so much more to everything Jesus does, right? This is, this is not just about one single fig tree that we see. There's so much more to this event, and that's what we're going to find out. We're going to talk about that and what all that means. So Jesus has come to the fig tree. He's cursed it for not producing figs. He says, may no one ever eat from you again. In the last part of verse 14, this is important. This is in there intentionally. And his disciples heard him say it. His disciples heard him say it. So now, hopefully, if, if you have any objection with the whole fig tree thing, hopefully that's kind of out of the way at this point. And I want you to look at verses 15 through 18 again. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching." For me, the first time I read this, I have this picture in my mind of Jesus busting in the temple, throwing up the tables, right, overturning everything, the money flying everywhere, and that the whole temple just shuts down, and everybody's staring at Jesus, okay? But 
the more we look in this, the more we understand about the way the temple was built. The area that they were was called the court of the Gentiles, and it was the biggest area of the temple. It measured 35 acres. If you know anything about acres, that's a massive area. If somebody's doing something in one, one corner of that, the majority of people are never going to notice it. So it's not as though Jesus came in and shut down everything. So if he only came to this specific point, there had to be a reason for it. There had to be a reason. This was the only area that non-Jewish people were allowed in the temple. Because as you got further in the different divisions of the temple, you had to be Jewish. And then there were certain things as you got further, you had to be a priest, all those things. So we're in the area called the Court of the Gentiles. And so this is where this is happening. So again, it's a massive area. Jesus goes to a specific spot. Now, please don't think that Jesus just chose this at random because Jesus never does anything randomly. Everything is intentional. Everything is on purpose. We'll, we'll find out why the fig tree was on purpose, but we'll find out now in verse 18 why this was on purpose. Let's start in verse 17. As he taught them. Now, that's just interesting itself. As he taught them. That means he's specifically trying to teach someone at this point. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And at first glance, we have the idea to think that, okay, he's talking to the people that were selling the doves or the people that were changing the money. He was not. That was part of their design in the temple. When, when God gave them the rules for the temple, there were supposed to be people in there taking taxes that would allow the temple to continue to operate. But in verse 18... The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. It didn't say they heard about this. It says they heard this. Jesus was very intentional with who was hearing his message. Just with the fig tree, he was trying to get that message to his disciples. Here, when he goes and turns over the tables, he wants the leaders of the temple to know that he knows what they're doing that he knows that things are not the way that God intended them to be, and that he's got a problem with that. So the first thing he does is he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, when it talks about your house will be called a house of prayer. Because what the leaders had done, the leaders had taken the temple and tried to turn it into a shrine for Israel. Right? As, as Pastor Matt preached on last week, their expectation was that Jesus was going to come in, get rid of everybody that was non-Jewish, and come in and kind of like take over the throne through like a, a military wave and become king. But Jesus is saying, no, listen, even, even the Old Testament, God has said, my house will be a prayer for all nations. Meaning that's not, the, the gospel of Jesus is not just exclusive to the people of Israel. It's for everyone. So this idea that we're keeping people out, that, that the Jews were keeping people out was not something that God was okay with. And the next part, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he's talking to the chief priests, he's talking to the leaders, and here's why he's doing this. People would make this pilgrimage to the temple, and they would come in, and they would have to pay, um, they would have to pay for sacrifices, right? They had to offer sin offerings, and they had to give thanksgiving offerings. So in order for that to happen, they would have to sacrifice perhaps a bird or, or, or give some oil, and that was part of the way it was designed. But what would happen when they would come in, they would be poor, they would be oppressed, they'd be suffering, and the leaders of the temple said, the reason you're poor, the reason you're oppressed, the reason you're suffering is because you have sinned against God. 
in order for you to make that right, you need to sacrifice more. Guess what? I happen to have the dove that you can buy. I happen to have the oil that you can purchase so that you can use these extra sacrifices. Basically, the leaders were lining their own pockets. They had the appearance of doing something for God, but the reality is they were robbing, their, they were robbing everyone. When Jesus refers to them as a den of robbers, when we think of our den, of our, our living area, right, that's a place of comfort. We feel safe there. What he is saying, he's accusing these leaders, you're robbing people and you're in God's temple and you have so messed this up that you feel safe. You feel safe. You have wronged God. You have wronged these people, but you've set this place up that you now feel safe hiding in the temple. You've made it a den of robbers. His intention with that verse is to show people that something that's intended for holy use can be perverted. There are things that God intends for holy use that we can mess up. I mean, we see things like this today, right? Like we've seen pastors in the news asking for more money because they need a new private jet, right? Those things like that happen all the time. There are still people to this day, this is not a problem that only happened in Jesus's day. It's still happening today that people are using the church for their own personal gain. Jesus had a problem with that back then. He still has a problem with that now. Now, as you would expect, the chief priests and the leaders were not happy about this. Verse 18, they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. The reason they were so afraid was because Jesus wanted to take away their power, and they knew that. They had, as the leaders of the temple, they had social power, they had political power, and they had economic power. They had everything set up for them to be at the height of everything. It wasn't about God. It was about them lifting themselves up politically, economically, socially, because that's where their hope was. Their hope was in having more money, having more power, having more status, and being the people that everyone looked up to, not in glorifying God, but being the people, I'm the guy that people need to look up to. I need to have control over everyone. That's where their hope was. And so that seems crazy to us. That seems blatantly, obviously wrong to put their hope in something like that. But a question that we need to answer is, what is our hope in? What is your hope in? Is is it in money? Is it in finances? Is it in security? Is it in your family? Right? If, If everything's okay with your family, then you're good. And that's what your entire life is simply geared around making sure your family's okay. Is it in your social status within the community? Is is it being involved in a romantic relationship? Is it rising up in your business or your company, whatever you're doing? What is your hope in? One of the biggest problems that we have, just as Christians and people in general, is we are not intentional about looking inward and seeing where our hope really is. For a lot of us, especially those of us that are churchgoers, we say that it's in Jesus. But if we're honest, if we take a look inside ourselves, what is that thing that if you lost it would just drive you to complete despair and you would not really consider life worth living anymore? Is it your family? Is it your money? Is it your security? Now, please understand, there is nothing wrong with those things, but if that is where your hope is in, it's going to disappoint you. At some point in your life, it's going to let you down because it's not intended to carry that weight. 
Only God is intended to carry that weight. Whatever that thing is that would drive you to despair, if you lost it, that's where your hope is. But if we're not intentional, we talked earlier about Jesus being intentional with everything he does. If you're not intentional and don't take a good look at what's in your heart, you're never going to find that out and you're going to assume that everything's okay. You can assume that everything's okay and then one day that thing's going to be gone and you're not going to know what to do because your hope was not in Jesus to begin with. The temple leaders had that option. Do I put my hope in Jesus? Their response was, no, let's just kill him. Let's look for ways to kill him. Because if whatever they have their hope in, if that gets taken away, for them, they're hopeless. Nothing's going to work at that point. Everything is smooth and easy for them at this time. But think about that. What is your hope in? Make sure you take some time to answer that question. So after this happens, Jesus and his disciples left the city. Looking at verses 20 and 21. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Another thing that's interesting, again, at first glance at this, this whole passage. So Jesus talks about a fig tree, then he goes to the temple, then he goes back to the fig tree. Why would Mark set this up this way? So as Mark's writing this, he sets this up this way intentionally because he wants us, he wants the readers to know that the fig tree is a symbol of judgment upon the temple. We start with the fig tree. It's not producing any fruit. It has this appearance that it should be doing what it was intended to do, but it's not. Then he immediately goes to the temple. Jesus is bothered because the people of the temple are not doing what the temple was intended to do. And now it's busy. There's a lot of religious busyness going on inside the temple, but there are not things that are glorifying to God going on inside the temple. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the temple just as he has on the fig tree. It's set up that way intentionally. Because, and this is the thing that for those of us that claim to be Christians should be concerning to us. The way that Jesus is approaching this is if no fruit is found, even despite the appearance of fruit, destruction is what follows. Destruction is what follows. Is there fruit in our lives? It, I think back to my microwave, right? My microwave is not doing what it's intended for. I'm not keeping it just because it looks like it's supposed to work. I'm getting rid of it. This is what Jesus is showing. If he is involved in our lives, there's supposed to be fruit. There's supposed to be things. Our lives are supposed to be coming more like him. Is that happening? And and Jesus' response, when Peter talks about the fig tree you curse has withered, okay, of all the things I would expect Jesus to say, verse 22 would not be the first thing that comes to my mind. Jesus' response is, have faith in God. Hey, Jesus, look, that tree's dead. Have faith in God. What? That seems, again, at first glance, that seems to not make sense. But it does make sense if we understand, if we see the fig tree as a symbol for the temple, for the temple that was set up. Because the temple was a central institution, right? That's where the majority of Jerusalem, people got their employment in the temple. It was the hub of everything that was related to being Jewish. Politically, religiously, economically, everything was there. And the reason that it makes sense for Jesus to have, to say this, have faith in God, is because up to this point, 
everybody's faith had been in the temple. They said, well, we know that, that God has said his presence is in the temple, but instead of placing their faith in God, they placed their faith in the temple. Okay, I know I'm safe as long as I'm in the temple. I know that everything's okay as long as the temple's good. And at this point, the temple had been standing for hundreds and hundreds of years, so they were not expecting anything to be different. But what happened is their faith became in the thing that God gave them and not in God. My, my dad told me a story one time um, about a man who went away on a trip. And while he was gone, every day his wife would send him letters and send him cards. And he loved them. So he gets them all and he puts them inside this case when he gets back home. And he puts the case up on the wall and looks at it every day and ignores his wife. Because instead of focusing on this man focusing on his wife was the one who did this for him, he focused on the things that he was given. The same thing with the people here in Jerusalem. Instead of focusing on God, they were focusing on what they got from God. That became their bigger thing. And that's how it becomes with us a lot of times. Like, okay, God, I I want you to give me this. I want you to give me that. God, I, I want, I want, I want. This is what I want. And so the more we happen to get those things, then we kind of have more faith in God. And when we start to not get those things, we kind of lose our faith a little bit. Because we're focused, again, not on God, but on what God can give us. So let's finish that in 22 through 25. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. That's another thing. Again, on on first reading, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. But as they're walking from Bethany to the temple, they see the temple is on this mount, right? It's called the Temple Mount. And so what Jesus is telling them is that this is about to be destroyed. It's not bearing fruit. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. The temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus' intention is not to rebuild the temple. The temple had already been rebuilt. Jesus' intention is to replace the temple, to be the sacrifice for sins, to be where people come for prayer. Jesus was planning to replace the temple with himself. And about 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple is destroyed and it falls down. So when he's saying that, he's saying this mountain right? If anyone says to this mountain, he's not saying, hey, go find a random mountain, throw it into the sea. If you got enough faith, it's going to happen. Don't, don't misuse that. In verse 24, it's probably one of the most misused verses in all of scripture. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The way this is most often misused is people will tell those who are sick and dying, just have enough faith. Everything's going to be okay. Just have enough faith. Now, if you've been alive longer than a few years, you know that that doesn't determine someone's health. People that have great faith die every day. That's a part of life. That's something that happens. So we need to understand either if Jesus really meant that that way, then that's crazy because we know that's not true. But what if there was something different? What if he meant it in a different way? Now, now, please understand, when, if people are sick, we should pray for them. We should want them to get better. We should take them to doctors. Those things are part of it. But let's understand, when Jesus, Jesus is the one saying this, 
So we think about Jesus' attitude of prayer. In 1 John 5, 14, this is what it says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Because if our faith and our hope is placed in Jesus, we are no longer living for what we want. We are living for what God has called us to do. So my will and my wants don't matter. Because at this point, if my faith is in Jesus, I have said, you know what, I'm giving my life to you. I believe that you have died on the cross for me, forgiven me of my sins, and my life is yours. That changes how we pray. If we believe that everything that we're doing is for God, for his glory, and through Jesus, and that changes how we pray, it doesn't come more about, I want, I want, I want. It becomes more, God, how can I glorify you? With my work, how can I glorify you? With my family, how can I glorify you, God? How can I fulfill your will that you have set for me in this life? Because a lot of times when we pray, we treat God as this genie who's supposed to give us the request that we make. Right? The majority of our time, our prayer is, God, this is what I want. This is, I want everything to be good. I want things to be comfortable. I want no problems in life. Basically, I just want a smoother ride. That's what we pray for. Jesus prayed differently. Now, in, in a few weeks or maybe even another month or two, we'll be in Mark chapter 14. And as it gets to the end of Mark chapter 14, it's close to the time of Jesus' death. And Jesus prays. He says, God, if there's any way that you can take this from me, meaning if there's, if there's another way to save humanity without my death on the cross, please do that. But not my will, but yours. So again, these things we pray for, there's nothing wrong in general with praying for them, but we need to have that attitude. God, these are the things I'm praying for that are on my heart, but again, not my will, but yours. Meaning that, that God's will does not always line up with ours, does not always line up with our wants. But Jesus, understanding God's power, but still being in full submission to what God's will is. And so when Jesus is telling his disciples this, he's showing them this new order of faith that's no longer focused on the temple. It's based on faith in God that overcomes impossible odds, is sustained by God's grace, and is characterized by forgiveness. By forgiveness. He finishes in 25, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Forgive them. How often are we quick to forgive people? How often are we quick to hold grudges? If Jesus has forgiven us of everything through his death, then who are we to not offer forgiveness to anyone who has wronged us? So we have to think about how now this connects to you and to me. Again, we have to be intentional about looking at our own lives because it is very easy for those of us that go to church to look busy religiously, but to have no fruit in our lives, to have no fruit, for there to be no change at all in our lives. Are there signs in your life that you are becoming more like Christ? Jesus doesn't want you just to look busy. He wants to transform your life to make you more like him. His goal is not religious busyness. His goal is to change your life. So when we think about things, for, for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, are you just as quick to get angry as you were before you were a Christian? Are you just as quick to get anxious about something as you were before you were a Christian? 
Are you just as quick to get jealous or to lose hope when everything doesn't go your way as you were before you became a Christian? Now, please understand, this, I, I'm not saying that once you become a Christian, life is perfect. That's not at all what I'm saying. That day will never come on this side of heaven. But is there any change at all? Because the Bible says that if Christ is in our lives, that we are producing fruit, that there will be change in our lives. Is there a change? Are you just as quick to those things? If there is no change, if we just have this appearance of fruit, right, we come to church, we read our Bible occasionally, it seems like we're good people, but in reality, our heart hasn't changed. There's two possibilities if, if this is the case. Number one, as you, we may think we understand the gospel, but we really don't. If you only look at the gospel, if you only look at Jesus' death and resurrection as a means for your escape from hell, then you don't understand the gospel. We do, that is not why Jesus came just for us to escape hell. That's not the point. If that's the case, then why, then why do we need to come here the rest of the time? Why do we come to church every Sunday, right? We are trying to grow in our faith because that is what Jesus wants us to do. He will meet us wherever we are, but he refuses to leave us that way because he wants to be glorified through our lives. So we have to understand that the gospel, the cross, is what we look to for everything, for dealing with anxiety, for dealing with fear, for dealing with jealousy, all of those things, the only way to get past that is for God's power to be at work in our lives. And the only way that happens is if we focus on the cross. That's the only way that happens. The other reality is that, as Matt spoke about last week, when Jesus comes in, he's claiming to be king. He wants to be king of your life. Your only two choices are to accept him or reject him. Jesus doesn't do things halfway. He wants all of your life or none of it. He wants all of your life or none of it. So you have to be transformed by looking at his life and what he has done and letting God's power work in you. I'm not saying that's an easy thing, but just as we talked about with Jesus being intentional, you have to be intentional about that. You have to be intentional about that. right? For, one of the ways this looks for me in wanting to, to read my Bible more, and wanting to spend more time in prayer, if I just say, that's a hope I have for this next week, right? then that may happen, that may not happen. right? Life gets busy. I've got two kids, work here, we've got a busy week coming up in church, things may get busy. I may not be able to do that. But the way this looks for me is I set my alarm earlier before, that, before I know the kids are going to be up so that I can go downstairs and I can spend time reading my Bible. I can spend time in prayer knowing that the day is going to be hard. Or even if it's not hard, just knowing that I, I need God for the easy days and for the hard days. It's not that we just need God when everything's going wrong. You need God every single day. If we're not intentional about that time, then that impacts our lives. That impacts the way that we look. So this idea of bearing fruit only comes by being intentional and by placing our hope in Jesus. Only by placing our hope in Jesus. So when we ask this question, am I bearing fruit? If, if you can look at yourself honestly and say, you know what, I'm not. The change that the Bible talks about is not evident in my life then there are things you need to do. You need to be intentional about spending that time with God. Because if, if you don't ever read this, you, you don't know what that looks like. You don't know what God wants to do in your life. You've got to spend time with that. Your hope has to be in Jesus and what he has done, 
Not just that you're trying harder, but that you're looking at Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross. The song that the band's going to sing um, is called On Christ the Solid Rock. And so I wanted to read that first verse to you in the chorus because this is what it all comes down to. All these other things we place our hope in are useless. But here's the first verse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's it. It's Jesus and Jesus' work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, we thank you that your work in our life produces fruit. God, it produces things that make us more like you. God, if, if there is something that is going on in our lives where, where we are not glorifying you, we are not becoming more like you, then we need to stop and take a look at that. We need to ask, why is there no change in my anger? Why is there no change in my anxiety? Again, not, not, not that we will attain perfection in this. God, but you have promised us that if we give our lives to you, there will be change in all these areas of our lives. Help us to take a look at that and help us to be intentional about the way that we respond. God, everything else we put our hope in is sinking sand. Everything else will fall. Even the good things like our family and like our jobs and our homes, our security, those things are not bad in and of themselves, God, but if they are our ultimate hope, they will fall and they will let us down because they were never intended to fill the spot that you are intended to fill in our lives. God, let us give our life to you completely. Let us put our hope in you. Make us more like you, God, whatever that takes. In your son's name I pray. Amen.